I'd like to present an idea. Become as capable as the weapon you wield. In his 1977 article, The Theory of Affordances, psychologist James J. Gibson describes the world as perceived through a lens of all action possibilities latent in the environment. For understanding what this means, I particularly like an example given by Professor Jordan B. Peterson. It goes something like this. Ask yourself, what constitutes a chair? Well, you might say, maybe a flat surface upon four legs. But that's obviously wrong, because what if it had three legs? Or no legs at all? Is a tree stump a chair? Okay, what about a beanbag? What about a rooftop? Quickly, it becomes apparent, rather, that a chair is in fact just a thing you sit on. And this is not only how we categorize, but how we literally see the world by means of utility, as has been further demonstrated by the famous visual cliff experiments. What this signifies is that we live and organize ourselves within a world of tools, most of which we create, either good or bad, but determined by the way in which we use them. Fire, the wheel, gunpowder, steam engines, nuclear fission, encryption. So capable are these peripherals we've constructed that the mutual and assured destruction of our species along with the utter devastation of our planet for eons to come, has just been narrowly avoided at least five times already just in recent history. It's clear that fundamentally, with these tools being inanimate, all that mediates how they are used is us as individuals. The actions we take, our character, how we conduct ourselves, and how we organize. Yet it seems, despite that, that we take great faith and aim ourselves toward improving the capabilities of these tools themselves, not necessarily matched by our own moral caliber. In fact, the call to arms of the comfort war is precisely telling of a phenomenon acting as a force opposed to this, the degradation of our cognitive capabilities. Supernormal stimulus serves this purpose astoundingly well, targeting our attention span, but not at all mediating our aversions towards careless action. It forms the incentive structure for self-inflicted detriment. In intuitively seeking comfort, we lessen ourselves constantly, incapacitating our abilities. What will be the consequence of that? If you find yourself numb, empty and uneasy, if you're unsatisfied, wishing to improve, but yet incapable, if despite having tried every trick in the book and giving it your all, you still find yourself pitted against rock bottom, unable to conquer that which you care about most, helplessly dejected, it may be because you're fighting the wrong guy. It may be that you're facing an enemy unknown. 
It may be that, in fact, you have within you a maelstrom of driven ambition, awesome and terrifying, that you do not lack passion in the least. No, that you've been consumed by it, that out of fear and unpreparedness, you've taken to comforts just to dull this inherent intensity, to suffocate it, suppress it, leaving it to wreak havoc unattended. You notice this only during rare moments of desperate self-realization, when confronted by the frustration that you are not you. You're not the way you should be. As the comfort warrior enlists in this endeavor to counteract cheap pleasures, he or she endures hardship and undoes this overstimulated desensitization in their pursuit of clarity. And before long, they recover the first victim of their previously accustomed numbed state of brain fog. Empathy. Once confronted with pain, forced to face it head on, to look it straight in the eyes, they're just stopped being excuses for accepting terrible conditions of others. And no damn kidding, that being the case. Can you imagine arguing otherwise in the face of those so tormented? Is their plight for help not clear? What is a brutalized, methed out, agonizing Thai slave on a fish boat supposed to expect of us, rejoicing at scarcely discounted seafood? How's a starving young child, his leg infested by guinea worm, supposed to judge the world of obesity epidemics? No damn kidding. Once you have the moral fortitude to recognize and endure it, once you've ripped yourself out of a nullified emotional malaise, of course the misery of others can no longer be ignored. In his 1944 essay on disbelieving atrocities, Arthur Kessler writes of the American population's horrifying apathy and unwillingness to believe in the ongoing Holocaust taking place in Europe. He writes, There is a dream which keeps coming back to me at almost regular intervals. It is dark, and I'm being murdered in some kind of thicket or brushwood. There is a busy road at no more than 10 yards distance. I scream for help, but nobody hears me. The crowd walks past, laughing and chatting. And such accounts are not rare. Up until, only very recently, the vast majority of South Korean people treated the testimony of escapees from across the northern border as fabricated. In his book, Practical Ethics, Peter Singer argues along this point, that we have a moral obligation to help those suffering from famine. This moral obligation is rooted in the concept of beneficence, an alleged moral principle. Singer formulates this obligation in the following manner. If it is in our power to prevent something very bad happening without thereby sacrificing anything of comparable moral significance, 
we ought to do it. He argues by this principle of beneficence that everybody's necessity is morally prior to anyone's luxury. And thus, we are morally required to attend to everyone's absolute necessities before attending to our own luxuries. This view has also gained some further popular attention recently as a part of the effective altruism movement. Yet altruistic notions aside, what I'm interested here in this idea I'm presenting to you is in the critique offered to oppose Singer's notion. The main criticism of this view is that such a moral standard could never be reasonably expected to be upheld by society and therefore fails to achieve any sort of usefulness. After all, is it really practical to expect that all of a sudden society will give up all forms of luxury for the sake of others? Think about that. It may be right, but we can't do it, so we don't have to. If that's true, and maybe it is, maybe Singer's wrong, is the greatest moral imperative not therein revealed to, in fact, become able to do it? One cannot bear on his own shoulders the burden of the world. That makes sense. That's probably true. But isn't it obvious at all that he should aspire in that direction? However unreasonable, there's a great measure of despicableness to be found in the careless willing to indulge in frivolous trivialities in the face of horrific tragedy, and still that's how we act most of the time, because we can't help it. God damn it then. Better yourself. Seek that. Try and help it. In 1973, in an article written by S.S. Wilson, it was determined that a man on a bicycle can go four times faster than a pedestrian but use one-fifth the energy in the process. At the time, he determined that through this combined use of his own physical abilities and the bicycle as a transducer, man outstrips the efficiency of all machines and all animals as well. Remarkable, isn't it? A creature as physically plain and unimpressive as man, outdoing all other forms of life and machine by use of a simple wheel. That's what we are, among other things, of course, capable of the unimaginable through the use of tools. And though it was later found out this efficiency record of ours has been beaten by baleen whales, the point stands. Man achieves greatness by combining his own individual ability with peripheral tools. These tools, as I've said in the opening, will never be inherently good or inherently bad, but only defined by the way in which we wield them. Therefore, the onus is on us to become as capable as the tools we wield, to be strong, 
both in moral fortitude and ability. In this day and age of spectacular tools, the choice between carelessness and self-betterment will be more consequential than ever before. Become as capable as the weapon you wield. Strengthen your body before brandishing the sword, lest you cut off your own arm. Strengthen your moral character, your capacity to endure, to do right, even in a world of tremendous hardship and tremendous functionality. In the words of Viktor Frankl, you may of course ask whether we really need to refer to saints. Wouldn't it suffice just to refer to decent people? It is true that they form a minority. More than that, they will always remain a minority. And yet, I see therein the very challenge to join the minority. For the world is in a bad state. But everything will still become worse unless each of us does his best. So let us be alert. Alert in a twofold sense. Since Auschwitz, we know what man is capable of. And since Hiroshima, we know what's at stake. Thank you for listening.